you've probably seen or at least heard of the movie Minority Report. In that movie, famously, there are these things, these kinds of people called precogs who can predict when someone is going to commit a crime. And in that movie, when the precogs sense or know or whatever it is that someone is going to commit a crime, the helicopters come around, the, the, the SWAT team comes in, and they stop that person from committing the crime before they ever commit it and arrest them and punish them, so on and so forth. It's, it's a real nightmare vision, right? It's a kind of, not quite surveillance, but there's a punishment of people for committing crimes that they would have committed, but they did not because the precogs saw it happening and the police intervened. It's not a picture of the future that anybody w- would want. Now, of course, we don't have precogs, but we do have AI and AI in the criminal justice system and AI making certain kinds of predictions about how humans are going to behave. And so it's natural, one might think, to fear that something like the Minority Report vision is coming to real life insofar as AI is getting integrated into the criminal justice system. Now, there's sort of, broadly speaking, two moves you can make here. One move is to say, no, 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 we can't allow any of this in any way, shape, or form. One reason is that in order for AI to do this kind of thing, the company's government would have to gather so much, so much data about us that there would be a massive invasion of our privacy. It's a surveillance state in that way. And so we must put a stop to it now. The Minority Report vision is appalling. And so we need to stop it at the source, which is make sure that that kind of data that's required in order to make those kinds of predictions is inaccessible to government and corporations. There's an alternative, though, and this is what my guest Guha, professor of law and longtime friend, has to say. Look, I hope that those privacy advocates and activists win the day. That w- that's probably the way things would be best. But Guha's a bit of one might call him a realist, one might call him a pessimist, and he thinks, look, that sort of Luddite vision of AI in the criminal justice system is, while appealing in many respects, it's just not going to happen. So this is an empirical claim. It's not an ethical or a normative claim that it ought not to. It's just, this is the way things are going to unfold. As you know, it's not going to be possible that the criminal justice system is insulated from the impacts of this evolving and powerful technology that is AI. Given that, now what? And what Guha says, at the core of it anyway, is that there is the Minority Report vision, and what we need is the articulation of another kind of vision of what the criminal justice system might look like when predictive AI is employed. So it's not, you know, you cannot collect this data, you cannot make these kinds of predictions. It's sort of, to some extent, conceding defeat. And then saying, what do we do about that now? That's the core of it. So I'm not going to say more about Guha's vision and what he thinks we really ought to do. He'll articulate that. But that's the really big picture thing to keep in mind, that we're not going to get to stop the collection of all that data. The Minority Report vision is a really horrible one. And so we need a different one in order to fund how we think about the criminal justice system with AI in a way that's not morally abhorrent and even downright beneficial, at least potentially. Okay, that's everything I have to say by way of intro. Usual housekeeping stuff. If you like this podcast, and presumably you do, you're listening to it right now, so clearly you like it, right? Why don't you go review it, give it five stars, tell your friends about it, that sort of thing. 
And if you have any recommendations on who you'd like me to talk to or issues you'd like me to address, please email me at em, as in ethical machines, em at readblackman.com. All right. Thanks so much as always. And let's go talk to Guha. It's not uncommon for me to get questions about AI and criminal justice. And in particular, people are usually really worried about things like bias in the system. So they'll talk about things like biased facial recognition software being used to identify people who, you know, suspects, and then the wrong person gets arrested. It's often a black man who gets arrested, even though it was a false identification by the software. And so people get really worked up about bias in AI in the criminal justice system. Are there other kinds of things that people are worried about? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think you're right that, you know, from my vantage point, a lot of scholarship that is confronting the use of algorithmic methods and AI in criminal justice are worried about error. But there's another kind of thing that people seem to be worried about, and that is what if it is too good? What if things, you know, AI and algorithms predict criminal wrongdoing really, really well? and then are deployed mm-hmm. by law enforcement and in a way that is ubiquitous, thus taking away our freedom, right? I think this is another right, this is- kind of big concern. So it's like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. So something like that. You use AI and it's going to go sideways. Either it's going to be sort of generic error just it gets it wrong, or it's going to be error of a particular variety where it's incorrect and discriminatory. That's when AI doesn't work well. And then the alternative is it works really well. And then we've got minority report concerns, like we have pre-crime. That's exactly right. And, you know, so a lot of the discourse about, you know, integrating algorithms and AI into criminal justice is, you know, the minority port report vision, right? You know, yeah. that's just going to go down and we're going to have minority report. We're going to have pre-crime. And uh, you're going to have stormtroopers on every block arresting people and punishing them before they've actually even done anything. Yeah. So, so, okay. I mean, I know that this is not your answer, but the sort of naive response to this is maybe it's not naive. I think this is actually, well, I think it's both common and maybe it's also naive. Let's just not use AI in criminal justice. The stakes are too high. Uh, You know, we're talking about whether people get imprisoned or not. In some cases, maybe even executed or not. Talking about their careers, their livelihoods, their family well-being, etc. It's way too high stakes. Either it's going to get it wrong in a variety of ways, or it's going to get it too right. It's no good. So let's let's just not use AI in the criminal justice system at all. To look, you want to do some like minor paperwork with it? Okay, fine. But for anything of, of real substance, uh, it should just not be used. Yeah, I think that, you know, this has come to be that sort of Luddite vision is yeah. come to dominate some, you know, discussions by both progressives, of which I count myself as one, and civil libertarians, again, which I count myself as one, in criminal justice. And I think that this is a misguided response. Now, I don't think it's a misguided response because I am some huge believer in AI and algorithms. Mm. It's because... We know the way, and your podcast is really devoted to the direction that this is going. Like, we are not going to be able to stop this juggernaut. It's going to Mm -hmm. infect every part of our lives. And the notion that we would have a criminal justice exceptionalism for algorithmic methods and AI, Mm -hmm. I just think is, 
is Pollyannish. That's really not going to happen. So, I mean, you might even concede. You might. Maybe you don't. You might concede, yeah, that would be great if we could just make sure that AI doesn't work its way into the criminal justice system in any significant way. But that's not plausible. Given the implausibility of that, we're just going to have to deal with it. And then the question becomes, what's the appropriate way to deal with it, as opposed to just screaming, no, never, not here. Yeah. Uh, so one thing is, I probably wouldn't even make that concession. I, I think you're right yeah. that like, I'm, for the purposes of you know what I'm thinking about right now, maybe happy to make that concession and say, look, we're going to have to live with this. But you know what I think, you know, has come out through lots of scholarship is that if we use some of these algorithmic methods, you know, to their full advantage, we can drastically reduce sentences and police intrusion into our lives. And so I think there's also actually quite a bit of promise there. And so this idea that I have in mind really wants to marshal some of the promise of algorithmic methods, but really center the notion that these things can benefit our lives. It's not just a juggernaut that's going to storm over us. These algorithmic methods can be used in ways that benefit us and that we have to center and focus that. So give me some of these things. Like, what are the examples where AI is going to be potentially useful in the criminal justice system? Yeah. So I want to think about two examples. One, that has to do with what we might think a very formal, formalistic or a minor transgression. And one, let's think about a more serious transgression. So that's jaywalking at one end of the spectrum and homicide, murder, violent crime on the other side. Sure, sure. So, you know, I think under the minority report vision of how AI would get integrated into criminal law, the idea is, you know, we would use these methods to predict when somebody is going to jaywalk, and then we deploy a, a force of officers, and you're, they're going to grab you before, and they're going to throw you into you know a police wagon and and give you a, a day detention yeah. or something like that. Be very busy in New York. Yeah, you'd be <laughs> extremely busy in New York, and this is why people are fearful. It's like, <laughs> hey, this is part of my general yeah. life. You know, it, am I going to just get yeah. pulled over whenever? And the other way we could think about this is no. We could use AI to, you know, be integrated with your phone. People look in their phones anyways when they're crossing the street to tell you when you could efficiently cross. It would track, you know, vehicular movement and it would say, look, you can cross in a more efficient way. You don't have to go to the, to the crosswalk. You can cross across, you know, across the street right now in a way that's safe and poses no dangers. And that's actually kind of liberating, right? And it would tell you hey, it's actually dangerous to cross right now. Don't, right? And at the same mm -hmm. time, it would tell vehicles like, hey, there's a pedestrian that looks like they're sort of rejecting our advice on this. Slow down and don't, you know, don't run into them, right? And yeah. in this way, we actually enable people to do the thing they wanted to do, which is cross at their win in a way that's safer and more efficient and we don't involve the criminal justice system at all. We're not pulling people or we're not nabbing them before they do any of this because, you know, jaywalking is, you know, like there's nothing in itself that's wrongful about jaywalking. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I get that. That's a potentially interesting example. I mean, I don't know exactly how you'd build such a platform. It seems like require a lot of coordination among a lot of entities, but okay. But okay. 
let's just say, yes, of course, it's going to take coordination. It's going to take lots of effort. But the sort of predominant assumption here is if you're going to be able to predict people's criminal wrongdoing, you're going to have to tap into lots and lots of data. You're going to have to know lots of stuff about them to do this at mm -hmm. any level of precision under this sort of minority report vision. Otherwise, you're not going to get good predictions. So the governing assumption here is that we have a life that is going to be dominated by AI and algorithm, algorithmic prediction in sort of all walks yeah. of our life. So if you can't actually predict, you know, whether I'm jaywalking or not, then you're not going to be able to use it. But if you can, you could probably tell me it's safe to cross here or not. Yeah, okay. I mean, obviously we've got now we've got privacy concerns. I mean, if the criminal justice system is enabled in such a way that it can collect that much data about us, then we've got other kinds of concerns, I would think. So so now I'm beginning to worry that sort of AI enabled or AI augmented criminal justice system entails massive, <laughs> massive violations of privacy of all the citizens that that AI is working on. Oh, I think that that is Which, probably yeah. right. You know, okay. and so, you know, I would say like, if we are able to create the bulwark against, uh, you know, this kind of privacy intrusion on us, then okay, you know, and that's good, right? That's a good in maintaining our privacy. But if we're able to do that, we are probably going to lack the resources to get into really good criminal detection and prediction. Yeah. So the like government okay. assumption here is that that's probably not going to be able to happen, right? I mean, there's just, you know, so much of our lives are are really just public. And, you know, they're public and it's just we have so much information about us that is just publicly available. And I mm -hmm. think that the sort of concern about the minority report vision is that stuff is going to get marshaled and there aren't adequate constitutional or legal protections against the government using that information. Okay. Go to the other extreme now. So homicide, violent crime, you know, grave kinds of crimes that cause, you know, serious harms. The notion there is that, you know, if you're able to predict that somebody is going to engage in that, you know, the minority report vision sure. is, of course, we would just go and apprehend them and then put them in prison for a long period of time, right? Because they're sure. inherently dangerous. Which people find morally abhorrent since now you're arresting and imprisoning people for something they've not done. Yes, right. Now, one thing I have to note is that a lot of our punishment is already based on things that you haven't done yet, right? Mm, so thinking about like intent to murder, is that the idea? No, it's that when you are sentenced, you are often sentenced principally, this is like a very important factor on whether you are going to commit mm. wrongs in the future. Oh, that's interesting. I haven't thought about sentencing much, but I always thought, I think that it was a function of how bad was the thing that was done. You're saying it's more for it's forwards looking. It's, What's it's the probability you're going to do something like this again? It's multifactorial, right? It, there, there are multiple variables. Of course, the graveness of okay. the conduct that you have committed does figure in. But if it were the case, you take two, you know, comparators, two individuals, both of them have yeah. committed an equally grave crime. One has a higher chance of committing the crime in the future. Mm -hmm. right. right. So I suppose like if they did it under extenuating circumstances, they were right. under duress, they were on under an unusual amount of stress because 
their parents just died in a car crash, whatever. Right? Whatever it is. Um, whatever it is. Right, right. Or, and so you might think they're less likely and still give them a lighter sentence. Yeah, exactly. You know, they they would get a less, they would often get a lesser sentence. Another kind okay. of example is people uh, of different ages. So, you know, mm-hmm. there's pretty good data that people at, you know, older ages, their proclivity for criminal wrongdoing goes down. And so they might be sentenced lower because they're sort of older and have less chance of committing further crime. So the system already takes into account things that you have not done. So this is not foreign to our system. You might say something like, okay, so that's the way the system is already. So we may as well keep doing it. I don't want to get sort of off onto a whole conversation about the ethics of sentencing. Yeah. But I suppose, you know, I'm beginning to wonder like, how... A, how could we possibly make those predictions with any reliability? How do we test to see if we're any good at them? It'd be really hard to test that. I mean, if we said someone's going to commit a crime and then they go and do it, great. If we say that, but we're not going to know because we said they're going to commit a crime, they're highly likely, so we imprison them. For all we know, they would not have, in fact. So we can't, it's hard to test that prediction. And then I'm worried about other kinds of predictors being problematic in other kinds of ways. So obviously, oh my God, there's so much, there's so many issues here, like, you might think that if you take being arrested as a proxy for likelihood to commit a crime and you say black people are more likely to commit a crime by virtue of black people being arrested at higher rates, but really that's because they're policed at higher rates, even though they commit crimes at equal rates, use those as proxies, uh, but you don't realize that. And then you wind up thinking that being black is a is a good predictor for committing a crime or at least likely to be arrested. But that doesn't mean that you should use that in consideration. Then that sort of worry just spreads to should we re- really be using sort of on what grounds do you use a predictor just you know justifiably for sentencing deep concerns that like you know sentencing theorists including me are always raising like are you guys using the right data in use in doing these yeah. predictions but the only thing i can really say is that given how prominent the chance of you know commission of a future crime is in our current sentencing regime I yeah, just yeah. think it's going to be part of our sentencing regimes into the future. At yeah, fair point. Fair point. Yeah. If algorithmic prediction of criminal wrongdoing does stand up to the tests, you know, to the rigors, it's going to be used in that way too. It's going to be used prior to commission. I mean, I know that I there guess... are constitutional protections against that right now, but you know, the constitution isn't set in stone, right? Like a lot of those will knuckle under. You know, a lot of those protections will knuckle under depending on how good we are at criminal wrongdoing prediction. Okay, so your I guess your response is something like it it might be the case that we ought not to use these various predictors in our sentencing, but we're gonna. <laughs> so right. again, given that we're gonna, whether we use AI in this context, the relevant benchmark is you know, the relevant com- point of comparison is not AI versus newly revised methods of sentencing that humans do where they don't use these predictors that's not that's not on the menu it, so the, the 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 relevant benchmark is how is it doing relative to humans and then this goes to your colleague and friend point peter salib which is we're really shitty at it and at least with an ai we can poke more as to determining hey what was this prediction based on what were the determining factors and then we can actually look to see one if something is explicitly let's say racist or if something is uh, a proxy for race, whereas we can't really do that with people. I think that's right. I have to say, like the sort of, you know, what I am taking as a given is that we are sort of inexorably moving 
towards a full integration of AI and algorithmic prediction in not just the criminal justice mm-hmm. system, but other parts of our life. Mm-hmm. How do I feel about that? It really depends on the moment, right? Sometimes I'm extremely <laughs> frightened by that. Sometimes I think that there's like, you know, great promise to this, but that's like sort yeah. of the given. And then all I would say is that like, we need another vision for how this is going to get integrated into our system. Mm-hmm. Right now, Minority Report is what's dominating what, we, what it's going to look like. And there's another yeah. way. And this is where I think this issue with serious crime comes in. Look, right okay. now, the vision is we would arrest that person and incarcerate them. We could do something else, though, right? What we could do is we could deploy a team some law enforcement individuals, a social worker, a therapist to that individual mm-hmm. who's, you know, predicted to commit a violent crime. We can stop them in their tracks yeah. and say, don't do this. And perhaps, you know, stop a lot of criminal wrongdoing without punishment, right? Punishment is the intentional imposition of harm on someone. So, yeah. you know, sure, sure. We don't have to do that part. And then we, you know, we're in a much better place. And so that's the vision that I have in mind for how we would integrate algorithms and AI into the criminal justice system. People have said this about policing generally, right? That, you know, in some cases or in many cases, police are put into positions for which they were not trained. Like, go deal with that homeless person. And the police are trained to arrest and, you know, take to jail or whatever, take take to the station. But the more appropriate response for a homeless person is not, or the, the more appropriate person to engage with that person is not a police officer, but a social worker or something along those lines who can get them the help that they need and et cetera, et cetera. I take your point is AI agnostic, really. Your point, I think, is something like there's a vision of what, of what I don't know, dealing with, well, no, that's not true because the, let's assume, stipulate the homeless person is not committing any kind of crime. You're saying even when they, it's predicting that they will commit a crime, nonetheless, the intervention is not I don't know, militaristic, for lack of a better word. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like the point is, and, you know, you mentioned Peter Shalib, you know, when I was talking to him about this, he sort of made this point, and I think it's pretty eloquent. One objection, right, to Minority Report is not that it predicts crime or that people come and try and stop you when you commit the crime. It's that they punish you regardless, right? If you (laughs) could predict it and stop people, why punish them? Just keep doing Mm. it every time they are going to commit a wrong, you know? I mean, I will say like right now, my car, when I'm like on my commute, alerts me when I'm going over the speed limit, tells me not to take this turn because, you know, there's a, a, you know, it's no right on red. And I mean, yeah, it's annoying, but it's also great because then I don't get a ticket and I don't get stopped sure, by sure. You know, law yeah. enforcement or whatever. So, you know, that's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess th- there's a way in which this, this sort of conversation is going on in talking about mass shootings right, where they sort of should have known there were signs that, you know, Joey was going to shoot up the place. And I don't think people are calling, or at least it doesn't seem like they ought to call for arresting Joey. But maybe, I don't know. I, I guess I just don't know. But among other things, what they could do is send help. <laughs> you know, therapists, social workers, whatever the appropriate, you know, course of action is that's not just lock them up now. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that you're exactly right. A lot of 
people say, couldn't we have intervened in some way? Now, right. the current state yeah. of our laws and the current state of our ability to predict precisely when somebody is going to commit a crime is still pretty right. low. So in that sense, yeah. I think some people say, couldn't we find something to arrest arrest them for, right? The criminal code is massive. Couldn't we find something to stop <laughs> right, them? Right. <laughs> but yeah. I think, you know, if our levels of prediction get really, really good, then one thing is we could, you know, stop them right when they're going to commit crimes. But there's another thing yeah. we can do, which is associated with what I just said, which is that we remove so much of the bloat of the criminal code, which is all mm -hmm. about pretextual reasons for law enforcement to, in, you know, intrude upon your life, right? Mm -hmm. Like most of the, you think about like the vehicular code, right? You know, so much of that is so officers can stop you, not because you are posing a danger in traffic, but because they want to figure out what's going on in your car. Are you trafficking mm -hmm. drugs? Do you have firearms? Like all this kind of stuff. That's what they want to know, right? And so, you know, like so much of our criminal code is like that. Well, if we got really good at prediction, we could just lop all of that stuff off, right? And just remove hmm. it from the criminal code. Now, I don't know whether we will do that. That's a political question, but the project sure, here sure. is to urge us to do that. Well, so, okay. So I want to, I was wondering about the, the, the urging as that was going to be my next question. So let's suppose, I mean, th there, this is an empirical claim, but let's suppose that if the criminal justice system, whatever that looks like, obviously it's people within that the justice system who have access to that data, who are authorized to have it. There's monitoring. We're assuming that there's certain kinds of safeguards put in place so that there's not an abuse of power by virtue of the collection and use of the data. So suppose we got that. That's already a tall order, but suppose we've got that. And if we have this vision where we're not just arresting people because we think they're committing a crime, but rather... We're actively A, preventing the crime and B, helping the person who's going to commit the crime in the first place. Then I wonder if you think it's a kind of, I'll put this really strong and you can tell me you want to back off from it, but it's, it's like a moral imperative to try to develop this technology in this way. I do think it's morally imperative, right? Like mm. I think that if you have the two visions, right? You know, one is, are we going to, you know, predict that somebody's committing a crime? and then lock them up? Or are we going to predict that they're going to commit a crime and then try and help them and stop them from at least that commission without imposing the harms of punishment on them? I think that that's just such an obvious choice. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, it gets tricky because, you know, like how much more investment is one of these going to take over the other? But one thing is, I think that the large task at hand is criminal prediction, criminal wrongdoing, the prediction of criminal wrongdoing. And that part just yeah. seems like we are going to invest in regardless, right? Mm -hmm. You know, after that, once you could do that, whether you deploy a set of police officers or a police officer, a social worker, and, a, you know, a therapist, that's really, you know, not significantly different. I don't think the investment is, of, of my vision is so much more. So I think I would tentatively say, I agree with moral imperative here. Okay, so here's, a, here's an argument to push back against that. Sure. You know, you're talking about a surveillance state, a, bene a benevolent surveiller. You know, because it's going to require all that data. Yeah. It's... That surveillance will undermine autonomy in a variety of ways because there's going to be 
the knowledge that everything about me is constantly being collected, analyzed, might be used in various ways to intervene in how I'm living my life. That might in turn cause me to make decisions that I wouldn't have otherwise, which is one of the problems with surveillance. It alters the behavior that you're surveilling in a way that undermines freedom. So now I sort of want to say, I see the sort of, you know, the other picture, the picture that you're you're painting, aside from, the Minority Report picture, I get it, sucks, terrible. Let's yeah. definitely not do that. The alternative picture that you're painting is like benevolent surveillance. One problem with the Minority Report stuff is that it's still surveillance yeah. of, of a sort. I mean, we get yeah. weird with precogs, but, you know, it's if you like malicious or militaristic or like fascist surveillers. And you want benevolent surveillers. Now, I think benevolent surveillers are better than stick surveillers, but I still got a problem with surveillers because that undermines autonomy. So if it were the case that, and maybe we're getting back now to where things are going to go, where they have to go. If it were the case that I had to choose between fascistic surveillor and benevolent surveillor, yeah, give me the benevolent one. Yep. But it just seems to me like the third option is, no, 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 no. Minority report stuff is unacceptable right from the start, out of the gate. It's off the table. Benevolent stuff requires, would be great in some respects, but it automatically requires so much data, so much surveillance, that should be thrown off too. And so we really do need a kind of ban on collecting that kind of data. I mean, China, where we're going to like monitor every single app that they use and where they're going and when they're thinking about crossing the street and et cetera, et cetera. And this gets back to sort of like, you know, what side of the bed did I wake up on, right? Like, I'm very sympathetic to the view that like this kind of surveillance is a real problem. I think, again, I just, and maybe call me a pessimist here, I just think we're going that direction. And I think it's an informed pessimism. Let me say why, you know, because like in my, you know, my day job is really to study the fourth and fifth and sixth amendments which are, you know, supposed to be the protections that we have against the collection of this kind of data and, you know, government surveillance. And they, as they're being interpreted right now, are just not up to the task. And so Mm -hmm. I am just really concerned that we are, that there's any way to protect as a legal matter against this. I mean, if you're saying like, look, no, that's where we should focus our efforts. I'm on board. I just, uh, you know, I think that's at best a coin toss. And so at least on one branch of that coin toss, which is we lose and, and, you know, the government is engaging in surveillance. I do think we have to have a vision for what the surveillance is going to do for us. And it's really articulating that vision that I think is is the task at hand uh, for at least some of us, you know. So I think you articulated implicitly in a third vision that I want to explore, which is, I don't know what to call it. It's going to be something like the, you know, the annoying car vision. The the annoying car vision is, as you said, you're driving your car, you're doing your thing, and the car says, like, you're going too fast. (laughs) Or, you know, you're now going 30 miles per hour over the speed limit. Or there's, you know, there's no right on red here. And, you you know, but it's up to you to take that right on red. It's more informing you, you know, that things might go sideways here. (laughs) Watch out. Right. And there's no... That, there's no connection to the police there. Not not directly, right? Th- that same system. I'd have a problem if, you know, I have a Tesla and I've actually turned off some of the safety features because it's too it's too neurotic for my taste. It's like too nuts. Like, you, can, you can't be that neurotic in New York and drive. Like, yeah. you're just going to <laughs> you're gonna have to make some moves. Anyway, 
I'd be very uncomfortable if I found out that Tesla were sending all of my driving data to the cops. You know, Reed is speeding at this intersection at this point. We are predicting that he'll still be speeding when he gets, you know, a mile down the road, you know, gear up. I would not like that one bit for a variety of reasons, including that my wife would kill me for getting a speeding ticket. <laughs> anyway, but I can see some kind of like on your local device AI, car, phone, whatever, saying, yo, you're about to break the law, or I'm predicting you're going to break the law. It's like a, a legal Jiminy Cricket. And so it only, it makes predictions about individual behaviors, but only reports those predictions to the person and then makes various recommendations like don't take a left turn. Hey, call this phone number to talk to a therapist right now, or you know, here's yeah. a suicide hotline or whatever it is. And so then all the prediction is not, it, it's for individuals to enhance their decision-making abilities, hopefully, and hopefully to engage in a kind of intervention, like a fitness app that says, yeah. yo, you haven't met your step goals. But that's compatible with a complete ban on using any of that predictive information in the criminal justice system. Good. So here's one question for you, right? What if I told you, right, like my vision is to get rid of all of the unnecessary surplus of the criminal code that isn't necessary to you know, protecting life, like protecting really important interests. Okay. So sure. then my code, my criminal code looks like, and I'm going to have the, your annoying assistant, you know, integrated with this code. And what it's going to do is it's going to tell you, don't turn there because you're going to run over somebody. Don't turn there because you're going to hit somebody. Sure. Don't, it's only, it's like really serious stuff. Okay. Now, do you still have the objection that Tesla is sharing the data with the police when all of the, you know, commands were really serious ones. They weren't Reed was going seven miles over. They were mm -hmm. Reed turned, you know, not Reed, someone else turned yeah, at the signal and like almost ran over a child, you know? Do you have the same objection then? Because I actually don't have as much objection then. So I, I will, but I want your intuition mm -hmm. on that. I see. So you think it's something like the severity of the situation is such that like a reminder to the citizen, like, don't do that. You might kill someone. That's not sufficient. It's within our powers, our collective powers or whatever that means to actually get someone in there to stop you from doing it. Yeah. And this is my point precisely, yeah. which is. Well, okay, so I, don't, I guess I don't know what I think about that. On the one hand, of course, I want to say something like. Oh, yeah, if the stakes are really that high and I'm going to run over a kid, we should make it such that police have access to the information that they stop someone from running over that kid. And now it's going to be this tough question to answer. I'm not really sure how to answer it about trade-offs between privacy and surveillance and that sort of an autonomy, that bucket of values and disvalues, and the bucket of values and disvalues related to, you know, inadvertent or intentional killings. Yes. I you know. Well, let me say this. I think that there's, I, I think that we could agree on a set of conduct, right? Where the consequences are so severe that you would be okay with restrictions on autonomy, even preconditions on autonomy to prevent those kinds of bad conduct. And then the question is, how big is that? How big is that universe? But I think we could agree like, oh, look, if you're going to end up killing a child, then let's stop you from doing that however we well, can. 
Yeah, I mean, look, if there was something like targeted, like sniper data collection that only relates to those really high stick situations, then I'm sort of, I'm more warm to the idea. Where I'm like, okay, they're just going to collect the data when it's super high stakes. I guess I'm skeptical that we're not going to be able to do that kind of sniper data collection because the whole point is that you got to find the signal and the noise, but you got to collect a whole lot of noise. Otherwise, yeah, you can't, right. you know, you're not going to know it. You know? And so, yes, it'd be nice if we lived in a world where there was that sniper data collection for those, but there's not. And so they're going to have to, if it's going to be effective, collect way more data than they actually need in order to find those high stake situations. And so we're necessarily going to run into massive surveillance. Yeah. So I think you're right that we can't do this with sniper data collection. We're going to have to use broad data collection. And my hope is that the bottleneck that we can introduce is only using it for sniper purposes, right? Like the the purposes of stopping, you know, severe conduct and then just get rid of the rest of the criminal code. And I have a bunch of ways we could do that. But once you do that, like I actually just don't have as many objections to the nanny, you know, when like, oh my God, if my car is going to stop me from hurting somebody, running someone over, posing a significant risk to somebody else, that's fine, you know? Like, I'm just okay with that. And I'm actually okay with yeah. people reporting when I didn't do that, like when I didn't follow the advice. Yeah. Because look, again, we could eliminate punishment. And if what I did, right, if I was angry one day, I was completely reckless and the car told me, don't run over that, don't, don't turn here, you might run over a person. I did it anyways. I actually probably yeah. could use an intervention. Right. I could use I mean, cops coming over to me and say, hey, you can't do that, man. You're almost killed today. You know? <laughs> sure. Yeah, I can I can see that. I guess a lot is going to hinge on how much confidence you have in the criminal justice system, specifically or the government generally, to only use that data when it's appropriate to do so in those high-stakes situations. I mean you know, some people just think the collection of the data is itself constitutes a violation of privacy. Just the having of it, even if nobody looks at it, just getting that data, no good. I'm not one of those people. I mean, I had this conversation with Carissa Valise where I think she's more on that side where just the collection of that data is itself a violation of privacy. I'm more inclined to think at least take a, a stipulated case where all that data is collected and goes into a vault and only the people who are legitimately authorized to have access do in fact have access and those who are not authorized do not have access. I think in that, I think that's a fine world, or at least it's not a, not necessarily a, a world that we really have to worry about bad surveillance or something along those lines. But I guess people have worries that we just don't have enough reason to trust criminal justice system, government, etc. to safeguard our data in the right kind of way, that it won't be abused. And so, yeah, that that sort of lockbox doesn't exist. Although maybe, you tell me, maybe maybe there are analogies in the law, like certain things not being admissible to court because they weren't collected in the right kind of way. Maybe is there something like that that might inform when some data could or could not be used in a proactive measure? So... Just a couple of things. I also don't share a strong intuition about whether the data collection in itself is a harm, like per se. Yeah. What I would say there is people who have that intuition, I just like, I'm sort of agnostic on it or, or uninformed, you know, I haven't thought about it enough. But 
I am like totally for those people who are fighting that battle. I assume they're going to lose, uh, right? Like <laughs> that if if they do in fact lose, I think you're exactly yeah. right. I come at the st- the criminal system with a great deal of skepticism. I do not trust you know political actors to use the criminal code in the right way. But here's yeah. I think a big gap, which is that if all we have in mind is a minority report vision of a crim- an algorithmic criminal system, we are duped, right? But if we can create a kind of vision that would hold our political actors' feet to the fire, tell them like, look, this is a plausible system when you have all this data, and this actually is freedom enhancing, this does not impose punishment, do that. This is really a kind of political call. That's what I would say it is. Mm. It's not, it's certainly not trust in our criminal system because I just don't have that. But it is like a sort of like vision that we can say, hey, why don't you do this instead? So it's okay. So if I've got this right, if the political, if certain activists win to stop the collection of all that data, that's cool with you. That's all right. Yeah, I mean, it's cool. In a world in which they don't win, the idea is not to keep fighting that battle, but to fight a different battle, which is something like the responsible collection and use of that data by criminal justice system. And that's the fight. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I will say is that, like, look, I think it's a difficult empirical question whether limiting our collection of the data is really the way to go. Right. Because if we Mm -hmm. have a lot of data and we are able to reduce sentences, reduce criminal punishment and the like, as Peter Salib argues that we could do, maybe on net, that's the best way to go. And if that requires collection of the data, I'm like open, you know, again, it's an empirical question. I'm open to that vision. But you're right. Once we have um, you know, accepted that we're going to, then I think, you know, yeah, in that situation, we need an articulation of how you could use that in the criminal code. That just won't be the fascist state, because, the nanny state, et cetera. You know, a lot of people in the sort of ethics space, privacy space are activists of a certain stripe where they're really pushing for like GDPR, where, but like a, an enforced version of GDPR. Right. And also by, you know, for, by the state or for the state. And I guess you're, you know, that's one way you could fight that battle. But if you just think like, you fast forward 50 years from now with all the technology the way that it is, and you think that there's just going to be a sort of now with, you know, halting of using all the way, there's no way. And so as a kind of, you know, runner up solution, we better really focus on the way in which to do this appropriately. That's right. And that's really good. That's a, that's a hard thing for hardcore privacy advocates because for hardcore privacy advocates, it's like privacy or bust. It's the only thing that like privacy goes number one. Anything that would diminish our privacy, forget it. And you're like, actually, there's some really important things that could. One, you're going to lose your privacy battle, and two, there are other kinds of things that we can still safeguard. In fact, safeguard more by virtue of a decrease in privacy, but. It's going to require political activism that gets really down to, like, I think, right, very particular laws about what can and cannot be done and what oversight there is for that. I think that is right. Like, I do think if we're going to accept the algorithmic predict, you know, data state, then yeah. it is all going to be in the nitty gritty. 
And that is like sort of, you know, the rest of this project saying kind of like, what are those precise principles on how to reform the criminal code in a way that is freedom enhancing and not a fascistic minority report kind of existence? Do you have examples of those principles? Yeah. I mean, one of them I've mentioned before, which is like, you know, any kind of government intervention has to at first, at, in the first blush, not you know, uh, duplicate punishment, right? Like the government interventions should not look like punishment insofar as they're po- as far mm-hmm. as that's possible. So that's one. A second one is let's get rid of all the protectual parts of of the criminal code. Big so what, is, what, what does that mean? So like a lot of the code is used as a, a pretext for law enforcement to get into investigation, right? So like, you know, I was mentioning before the vehicular code, a lot of that is so that officers can figure out what you're doing. Well, if we have these other methods of prediction, let's bring that down, right? Let's mitigate mm-hmm. the inclusion of those kinds of criminal actions. Mm-hmm. Similar kind of thing is right now we have lots of offenses like attempt liability, conspiracy liability, solicitation liability. That is all about predicting the ultimate criminal wrongdoing, right? So they can charge you with a crime earlier because they don't want mm. to risk you committing the full crime, right? Right, right. Well, if you're really good with data prediction and you know when I'm going to commit crimes, we can remove all of that and you can yeah. then employ interventions that are non-punishment-like and instead, you know, trying to stop me from doing this with a the therapist, with a the social worker, et cetera. So right. these are sort of lot like, you know, principles that are like, look, if we get the benefits of all this prediction, we also have to decrease the impact and the footprint of the criminal code. Hmm. That's a short order. It seems like a yeah, easy, simple. Yeah, easy, easy, easy. Right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Guha, this has been super interesting. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, we'll have to come back. And I, I feel like I got to get you in a room with some other, you know, a privacy fanatic. Eh, fanatic is a bit strong. Activist. And uh, got to hash it out. I'd love it. This was fantastic. Thanks so much, Reed. All right. Thanks, Gua.